Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Stephen. Hello, I'm Helen. And welcome to a special edition of the New Statesman podcast following on from the weekend's terror attacks. We're picking up off that to talk about Theresa May's speech outside Downing Street. Whether or not she can regulate the internet. Is it possible? Is it desirable? We talked about May's authoritarian tendencies. And what are the true causes of extremism? Hello and welcome to a special extra edition of the New Statesman podcast covering some of the fallout from the weekend's terror attacks and the short suspension of of campaigning that followed it. Stephen, you wrote a piece about that May speech, which I thought was a fairly extraordinary speech in a couple of different ways. Do you want to give me your take on it first and I'll tell you the things that stood out to me? Yeah, obviously a lot of people's opinions, it is fair to say, have got worse towards Theresa May since this short campaign started and I'm very much one of them because I think beforehand I thought this is someone with whom I profoundly disagree with on a a, a swathe of of issues a fairly orthodox centre-right politician but I'm uneasy about the impact of her continuing to be prime minister on our economic life cultural blah blah blah. but I would say then the thing that has has added that she's added to this campaign is what I would describe as a casualness around democratic norms right so it was a speech where the first half was very much what you would expect a prime minister to do here are the facts, here are some kind of reassuring platitudes about our uh, our, our democratic values and their enduring strength. Uh, and then the second half, which was a series of proposals that can only be achieved if the Conservatives are re-elected with a, with a majority able to pass a series of anti-terror messages. So it was fairly obviously a switch to a campaign speech, despite this being a time when she had negotiated and agreed with others for a, pause in campaigning. I mean, that's yeah. what stood out to me, and it reminded me very much of the day before the local elections as well, where she came out to say Jean Claude Juncker is a bastard, and um, Europe are being, you know, horrible to me. Which again just felt like a very obvious kind of get out the vote message that was a kind of P.S. You know, let me remind you to get out. You know, to kind of kind of get out because Europe are horrible. And I'm the only one who can protect you. Which I think was. Totally reasonable then, even if it did make me feel slightly queasy that she was using the kind of trappings of of number ten and her prime ministerial authority to do that. But I think it felt it felt more a more I was more uneasy with her doing it about terror because I think it's one of those things where you know there's always a thing after gun deaths in the US where people go don't politicize this because someone's actually says maybe you should have not allow you know people with a past history of domestic violence and mental illness to buy a, a machine gun. Um, and then, but inevitably, these are political acts. Terrorism, terrorism is political, and it's also it's something that demands a, a policy response. You can't be apolitical in response to it. 
I thought the the speech outside Downing Street being like these centre-right politicians that dominate the European Union secretly want Jeremy Corbyn to win was crazy, and I don't think it, it was a good look. But everyone in the European Union understands that everyone has elections, right? And people are just willing to forgive that kind of nonsense. Yeah, that's not what I would have done, but I sort of felt it was fair enough. Um, yeah, if, if, if all you care about is getting a stonking majority in the local elections, which clearly is all she cared about, then okay, if that makes you happy. The stuff about the internet I find more troubling, and, and, and I think it points to something that I have found generally, we have a lot of conversation on the podcast about kind of the scrutiny that's applied particularly to the Tories. I feel that because most political journalists, no shade to them, don't really understand cryptography. I mean, who really does apart from like 12 people? But generally, I think the sort of level of tech literacy among journalists is quite low. So you get politicians get away with making very broad statements. So she said, actually, she wants to, quote, regulate cyberspace. I mean, the fact that no one has called it cyberspace since about 1997 should be slightly alarming to people. But that is a, a huge, huge statement uh, to make, you know. And actually, for all the newspapers who spent the past three years campaigning against Section 40 and against, the, you know, more regulation of papers because they know that the expense involved, the potential free speech implications, to then kind of give this a complete pass, I, I find really alarming. I was reminded of the fact that, you know, Amber Rudd, when she was on Andrew Marr, said she needed to find people who understood, quote-unquote, the necessary hashtags. So that's Twitter trending topics. What she meant was hashing, which is unique identifiers that you can use to track the spread of a particular piece of content across the web. Now, I don't really pretend to understand this stuff in the detail that you would need to make policy around it. Luckily, I am not the one making policy around it. Yeah, yeah, I I think it, it is sort of troubling. I think the other thing which is troubling about it is it's fine to, and I actually think it's hugely, one of the reasons I was, I'm really troubled about this this new trend of pausing political campaigning when there's a terrorist attack. I don't think it is a remotely deliberate trend, but it just... It's it on just, the continuum of martial law, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's on the continuum of a bad thing has happened and therefore democracy needs to stop for a bit. Yeah, it just I just feel it's just a really bad road for us to have started going down. And actually, weirdly, I, I never thought I'd say this, but I talked to a very senior figure in, in UKIP, uh, where I just weirdly happened to bump into them when I was wandering around London. And they said, yeah, look, ultimately what these campaign pauses do is they allow her to appear strong and stable on TV and the rest of us look like we're politicising it. Now, okay, I happen to think that UKIP's political response to terror is wrong. I was about to say borderline racist. I have no idea why I was going to put the word borderline there. And just deeply, you know, against everything that, to me, at least, uh, this country should stand for. But the one thing they're right about, exactly as you say, it was a political event and they ought to be able to offer political solutions without the Prime Minister kind of using this kind of passag cultural bullying to suggest that the only person who ought to be putting forward solutions on on terror is her well it's sort of saying i'm the prime minister which is above politics rather than the leader of the conservative party and we do already have rules you know the reason that we all knew when she came out to do the speech announcing the snap election the reason that we knew that was um that was going to happen um was because it didn't have that seal of the of number 10 downing street on the lectern right because at that point it moves from being you you can't make that announcement as the head of the government you have to make it kind of as the head of the conservative party and and i think there's been some blurring of those two roles throughout this campaign yeah and i think one of the the kind of interesting trends of, of not just this campaign but the last two years i feel bad uh, singling out tom harris because you know he, he reads my morning email as our podcast listeners should too but um tom harris being very like oh how dare the prime minister make a statement outside almost as if she's the prime minister and it's just like okay tom but you understand why the 
Transport Secretary ought not to be able to get up and go, guess what, Midlands marginal voters, I'm putting a new railway in, right? You understand why that's a problem. And there are lots of Corbyn sceptics who have basically in the last two years looked at something and gone, lol, but it doesn't matter because Corbyn's unelectable. And um, the Tories gently easing away at the things which make politics a, f- a somewhat fair fight. They're not going to, you know, the second Corbyn is replaced by, you know, like Emily Thornbury or John Ashworth or Yvette Cooper or whoever, you know, if, if, whenever that, that happens, right? They're, they're not going to suddenly go, oh, well, we'll stop now. And every, and every single Corbyn sceptic who has failed to be loudly angry about why they ought not to do it will suddenly have to explain why it is that they care about Perda now. Yeah, I also have been thinking about this about about Corbyn's sceptics, and I think the trouble is, even though the, uh, the majority of them have gone ex- sort of you know very loyal and silent, the whole party does get into kind of campaigning mode um, as soon as an election's called. I think the problem is that even now, when they still express doubts to you privately, they're still in the mode that they have been of these ideas aren't popular rather than these ideas are wrong. And I think that all the way through has been the problem with the critique of Corbyn. It's It's been like, well, obviously, we'd all love to do X, but you can't get, you know, the, the British voters won't wear it, rather than saying, you know, I mean, Liz Kendall inched towards it, but we can say there's nothing progressive about passing on debt to our, our children. And then that line was kind of nicked by John McDonnell. But I think there has been, that has been a crutch that people have kind of relied on. So that was just an aside of something I was thinking yeah. about at the weekend. Yeah, I think because, I mean, there are lots of interesting things about this two, three, however long it ends up being uh, sort of leadership of, of the Labour Party. But I think one of the things I found really striking about the last couple of weeks is a lot of people have forgotten how bad the 2015 result is. So YouGov's projection, right, which may or may not turn out to be accurate. But weirdly, people keep critiquing it by going, lolol, according to this, Reading West is would be a toss-up. And you go, yes, in order for Labour to gain to get to 260 seats, seats with quite big Tory majorities that they've only won in 1997 or 2001 have to start flipping red or at least looking like they might flip red because of how bad the 2015 result was. And it feels to me that there are, there's basically two, it feels like there are two big groups in the in the Labour Party. There are, there's a group of people who think that they fixed all of their pre-2015 problems on the 12th of September 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn became leader. My instinct is that is not the case. And there's a group of people who seem to think that Jeremy Corbyn inherited a party. It was bang in up. The, yeah, and in he the, drove in, that right into In the pink yeah. of health. And that's obviously not true either. Yeah, I think I remember, I, I, I don't remember if I got this exactly right, but I remember talking about in the early stages of Corbyn leadership about whether or not he could win back Scotland. You remember there's a lot of stuff about actually now there's a true socialist alternative, he'll win back Scotland. Mostly, let's be honest, from people who weren't Scottish who didn't really understand the importance of identity and nationalism and independence in that question. And then realising that if you looked at the kind of majorities, so either you know Labour's got to win back a significant number of seats in Scotland to form an overall majority, or it's got to do really well in seats in England and Wales that it's kind of never done well in before. So, which was kind of, I think, I'm pretty sure it is the case that it would really either have to win over seats like Kensington or Kirkcaldy again, right? Yeah, and basically, it, it and, and in either case, that means overturning 10,000 level majorities. And I actually think that I would probably bet in, in the next five years that Kensington is probably easier. Well, K- Kensington, one, demographically is moving towards uh, Labour. Two, obviously, bits of it are, are really quite poor. And three, of course, there is the referendum and the social liberalism mm. aspect, all of which uh, Theresa May is not. And I'm my um, instinct is whoever succeeds her, which I think will be rather sooner. I think <laughs> yeah. regardless, 
because actually the poles aren't showing us two different things. The poles are showing us exactly the same effect, but basically they disagree about whether or not young voters and other low turnout groups will turn out, right? But that basically everyone agrees that Labour... They're showing us a quite a good picture of what people think. Yeah. But that's the problem is whether or not those thoughts are translated into action on polling day, right? Yeah, and and, and basically also the, the thing that it's very hard for pollsters to work out is what these people are thinking where they are living, right? And then you, you basically... I was talking to a Conservative MP who said, I don't, you know, don't quote on this. And they said, actually, on reflection, don't, don't attribute, don't, just don't do it at all because it will be really obvious who it's come from because there are only four seats like mine. And, and that is the thing, right, that obviously there are only about 100 seats that really matter under first past the post. Some of them have very specific uh, sort of demographic effects. Um, interestingly... Yeah, which the YouGov model does pick up, right? Because East Devon being an example of this is that the second place last time was an independent who had, a, I think, an NHS-based campaign. And under the YouGov model, they have her making up 10,000, 12,000 votes and, and winning that seat. No, yeah, it, yeah, but but, you know, but independents have run very stirring local campaigns before. I think I was going to say Kidderminster for a long time had an NHS independent candidate. Yeah, from two thousand and one all the way till twenty ten, actually. Yeah. But I think that yeah, the thing is, is we we all the interesting thing about this this terrorism speech, and I think that so the tro- so there's the the troubling thing that the Conservatives' policy platform on encryption and tech in general is is just not what you would wish for or expect from a party that has been in office since 2010. A lot of people talk about the privacy implications, which obviously they are large, but in some ways I feel talking about the privacy implications, we're a bit like if Amber Rudd went on TV and said, if there's a fire in your block of flats, just jump out of the tent, strip off naked and jump out of the 10th floor weekend, or 10th floor window, me going, oh, but but there are privacy implications to the fact I'll be naked, is true, but the bigger problem is that if I jump out of the 10th floor, I will die, right? I will not escape that fire. And, like, there are privacy implications to ending encryption, but one, there are security implications. Two, you can't end encryption because you can't uninvent knowledge. And it isn't just even the sort of tech side. You know, like, when I was little, I and a friend used to have a way that we'd we'd write to each other by skipping a letter of the alphabet every... uh, forward by everyone, right? That 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 is a mode of encryption that anyone can do... You know, then any jihadist cell, if they want to, can just text each other. Rant, you know, like. You just... Well, what you could, what you are essentially doing with that, I would suggest, is you are teaching jihadis to code. Hence, what happened is that people migrated to Telegram. You know, people migrated to new apps because they, the, the existing methods weren't very secure. But um, there are some things that could be done. I've just been, um, I've written about this for my Sunday Times column. For example, Twitter don't have a specific category for um, for flagging stuff as terror-related content. So actually, I was talking to. Mini Kalamachi, who does who who reports on ISIS for the New York Times, and she said, "Well, I try and report these ISIS accounts, and actually, there's no there's no thing to tick." You, you go, "Well, is it offensive?" I mean, it's not, but this is a this is a kind of this is an ISIS propaganda account. Like, what bucket does that fall into? So actually, there are small things that wouldn't have any implications that they're just kind of quite reluctant to do. The big thing, the really big thing that everybody is is very wary about is taking like taking responsibility for what is published on your platform and you can see why the tech companies don't want to do that because in the same way that one of the happiest days of my life was when we got rid of comments on the new statesman site it's a hugely expensive job to moderate stuff like that and it's a huge legal liability to take on um, legal responsibility for anything that is lying around on your servers you know moderation is is this kind of huge great engine that should and some some places 
does underpin the internet. But it, you, like AIs are in no way good enough to to do that. Actually, there's you know there's there's huge numbers of human moderators, and actually places like Facebook are resisting getting more because you know, actual humans cost money, lots and lots and lots of money, which you'd think would have kind of been an argument that Amber Rudd and Theresa May would be sensitive to because it's literally exactly the same problem as with the police and intelligence services, right? There is unfortunately no amazing AI that can read somebody's emails and you know with 100% certainty flag up that they're an extremist there are probably sort of bits of sentiment tracking you could do there are probably keywords that you could have flagged there are probably sites that you could see who's visited them but what is it like 20,000 people that they suspect have some kind of connection to jihadism or interest in extremism 3,000 people who are actively interested you know have kind of ticked their Facebook profile that they like jihad pages you can't follow those people around 24-7 and you can't arrest them before they've done anything unless you're living in minority report actually what i want to know is is it just me or has there been this 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 new emergence of like a weird group which seems to span the far right and then like a weird middly blue labor bit of the center left who after these attacks they're like we just you know people won't talk about the real problem and you're like go on then and they're like people won't take the real action and you're like mm-hmm, fire ahead yeah. and it's just I didn't think I'd ever say this, but I think I preferred it when people were just openly going, I'd like to have an internment camp, instead of this weird new zone we've entered, where it's like these people are like, yeah, but we won't talk about the real problem. It's like, and what is the real problem? It's, but it's the, entirely the version of, you know, no one ever is, no one is allowed to talk about immigration, which was translated as, when I talk about immigration, I get pushed back on this and people disagree with me, right? Yeah, coupled with, I think, this new weird thing of, I feel whenever there's a, uh, terror attack I always get things in my inbox accusing me of, of not using the words um, radical Islam or Islamism or jihadism it's like one of the things that I've definitely used all of those words at various points but also it's not like Rumpelstiltskin guys like it doesn't do you know what I can't handle and then this is my personal beef for this I cannot handle the fact you were absolutely treated as some kind of crazed feminist loon if you want to talk about the fact that the jihadists are overwhelmingly male like this is an ideology that overwhelmingly appeals to young men and that sort of that tells you something um, I was just thinking how much I would love to read a research project that goes and interviews the sisters of jihadis right what is the thing? Because they always say it's one of the things that say in the prison system is if only we get men in the prison system to behave more like women who have higher rates of literacy, who are better integrated with their families, you know, who find it easy to get out. But that's kind of considered to be some kind of crate, like you can't draw any, or the fact that, you know, lots of these people have, have domestic violence, like lots of shooters, mass shooters in America have, who I would classify as sometimes as, as intimate terrorism, you know, have domestic violence arrests on their record, right? And lots of these people, you will often find a wife who has been absolutely terrified to them, who hasn't been able, you know, either has tried to report them to the police or is too terrified to report them to the police and you know there is a pattern of violence that we're just never allowed to talk about because that's considered to be some kind of cuckoo thing and I have I have to and reluctantly come to the conclusion that that is men who like talking about terrorism as a, a geopolitical problem and as a religion problem don't want what they see as girly soft kind of social stuff creeping into what can otherwise be a, a very manly discussion and I know that's probably really offensive and I, I know I'm saying this to you as a man who I don't classify in that but do you know what I mean that sort of can, slight can we be clear you don't clarify me as a man who thinks of it as a as male violence as you know as a, a twinkly issue and not you just don't classify me as a man 
I, 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 whatever, you know, however you identify is totally fine with me, but I, uh, I, d- I don't lump you in with people. You know what I mean? There is oh, that no, sort there is of... definitely lots of people who basically think that, like, real counter-terrorism is, like, talking about muscular liberalism, which, as far as I can tell, mainly seems to be a synonym for liberalism for dense people. People, it's liberalism for people who say, this isn't a question so much as a statement. Yeah, like... That kind of thing. But the second you kind of go... So, right, so what are the big triggers for extremism? Because the other interesting thing is when you add the terror attack then everyone has, has effectively seems to have forgotten, which, of course, is the assassination of Joe Cox, right? And actually, you would think that adding a white supremacist to... Uh, violent uh, religious extremists would mean that you would get slightly slightly different demographic story. But actually, because some of these violent jihadists are also white, it doesn't even change the demographic story. It's a man, mostly, you know, talking about people with educational failure, known to the authorities for other crimes, uh, low education, low life skills. And and, the, and that's the, why the same stuff like the enslavement of Yazidi women is absolutely totally germane to this. What does that form of, um, I you know, radical Islam Islamism that is offered by ISIS? Offer you? It offers you the chance to be a little king, right? A little king, all of your own, um, and definitely in charge. And you you know, and it and, and it's a power fantasy. And the terrifying thing about this, Sam Friedman, who is. He's not head of Teach First, but he's something at Teach First. He's, he's very good at this, right? Good on this, right? There is a, a widening problem in our education system that uh, we are failing an increasing number of young men. And basically, throughout the world, whether it's voting for Trump, whether it's turning to white supremacism, religious terrorism, whether it be Christian, Muslim, whatever, it's white men without any qualifications who in a high-tech world are having an increasingly rubbish time and basically every year we look at the GCSE results and everyone goes standards are up and it's like well they are provided you ignore this one demographic group and everyone's like well we're not really sure what the problem with that is but it'll be fine they probably won't do anything bad and obviously the vast majority of people without you know post-16 qualifications are not driving cars into people and of course one of the reasons why things like the manchester attack attack are so rare throughout the world is because mostly if you are if you have the wherewithal to successfully build and assemble a bomb you don't go down the radicalization pathway no but i really felt an an echo of that when i was watching the question time special actually and the number of middle-aged white men in the audience who were really insistent that they wanted to nuke somebody oh yeah the trident thing was fascinating um and i and i know and, and i know that probably a lot of people will find this really offensive because it isn't making huge generalizations huge generalizations but it was really i mean just in that audience it was not middle-aged women and it was not young men right it was a it was a certain kind of it they were just they they all had a certain echo between them of like but you know once the 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 bomb has been set off from iran like why wouldn't we respond and you're like i, I don't mean to be rude but once the, like, the whole of england is a smoking post-apocalyptic wasteland the fact that we've taken a few people on the other side out is not really something to this to is cheer why about. james callahan uh his note to the submarines was don't bother because he was just like well i always took the view that the whole point was mutually assured destruction if a bomb has been thrown the principle has not worked so 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 you know what's the point but it did come back to your thing about the kind of national penis and the kind of like the idea that having a nuclear deterrent puts us in the big boys league and actually people want that sense that britain is a big country still yeah and i think my instinct is trident will become more politically potent not less after we've left the european union i mean obviously if 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 theresa may does sort of pay through the nose to get like 
and effectively a deal where we're like Norway, but with immigrants instead of fish, right? That would that would be something that actually the bulk of people in the United Kingdom would support. Uh, but no one's ever going to go near any of this stuff because even just now thinking back on what we said, you know, the idea that people would say, you know that thing where people go, are you comparing blah with blah? And you kind of go, well, in this one particular small way, right? And I'm not obviously not damning half of Britain's population as being these kind of you know, radicals in, in training or, or anything like that. But you will never get, you kind of will never get an analysis because it's it's and, it's, and it's it's kind of too hot to handle. No politician is ever going to go near that. And also it just doesn't look aggressive enough, right? So one of the things that Corbyn is doing very skillfully is he's massively triangulating on the security issue, right? You know, we, we all know that, that, that Jeremy, in my view, rightly, is quite sceptical about the overweening, giving too much overweening power to the police and the security services. He's called for cuts in the armed forces to be accelerated in the past. But he's skillfully weaving that into the kind of wider austerity. Well, he's now making it an anti-austerity thing, isn't he? Which, which, you know, is obviously kind of uh, astute. But also, because the weird thing is, is, right, if you go, okay, how do we deal with extremism? If you go, well, we're going to work out what it is that means that we are failing Bangladeshi boys in Newham, boys in coastal communities, boys in declining towns. People kind of go like, mm, that doesn't sound very aggressive. You know, like that, that doesn't, and understandably, it doesn't necessarily make people feel safe in the short term. Yeah. Um, Whereas having a big internment camp off Dover would, yeah, would make some people very, very happy because it would be a thing that you could point. In the same way that people really like the idea that you know tough sentences were locking loads of people up, that makes the streets safer actually is you know imprisoning repeat kind of people who you know, is, you know people who've been done for embezzlement is not really necessarily yeah, making our I, streets safe have i gone off the reservation like there is a slightly weird like anti-democratic tinge to some of the things may does right she does seem to have this kind of like other people do politics i have morals kind of thing I think that's that's why I think she's had such a tricky time in the campaign because she's pitched herself as above politics, and then the trouble is every time you do, you know, every time you show a bit of your your feet of clay, it chips away at your aura, right? Whereas if you do, you know, Jeremy's kind of ended up coming up from below, if you see what I mean. So he now, the thing that's been really consistent, I thought, from him and this. Sky Channel 4 thing and then on the one show is him saying everybody I speak to I learn something from you know everybody's got a story to tell everything's got something to say and actually if you look back on his parliamentary career that's entirely true he he would have gone to any meeting that people had invited to him to um, you know he would have kind of turned up to open your church fate or whatever or had a long conversation about bus routes with somebody like he just was that kind of person but Theresa May has presented herself as a, as an overlord right and that's a very brittle position to be in. That you know, you can be kind of you can become ridiculous quite quickly. Whereas the the ridiculousness was already kind of baked into Corbyn with people sort of saying that he was a sort of bearded eccentric who who pottered around, right? Whereas actually, there's a sort of campness about that authoritarianism almost sometimes. Yeah, I think she has. Well, obviously, we'll talk about this when we discuss the campaign in the next podcast. But I, I, I think, yeah, you're right. There is an element almost that she comes across now a bit like a supply teacher that's lost the room. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? All the bit where sort of the um, the kind of bit where Rocky sort of slightly tips into being kind of slightly gay. You know what I mean? That, that... So confession, I've never actually seen the Rocky film. Oh, okay. Well, Sylvester Sloan is really interesting about how macho becomes camp quite easily, right? So you get mildly muscled man, quite macho, proper massively muscled man it becomes quite camp, right? Particularly if in small shorts. Um, I'm not really sure how we ended up here from where we started, but that's probably a good sign that we should probably stop. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis and stephen bush we are recorded by india book and mixed by james shields if you would like to hear more from the new statesman there is now a sister podcast deep dive featuring ian leslie and Stuart wood and they've been talking about issues in much greater depth search for that on itunes or the podcast provider of your choice it's called deep dive Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.